welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 36, Backlash, How the Vaccine Pushes Turn True Believers into Vaccine Skeptics, Part 2. What happens when clinicians and researchers uncover data that contradict the dogma that all approved vaccines are, quote, safe and effective? In Part 1 of this series, I explored the ways that researchers aligned with the vaccine industrial complex frame vaccine hesitancy amongst the public. This podcast will focus on the other side of that coin, the challenges faced by clinicians and researchers who uncover data that contradicts the dogma that all vaccines that gain regulatory approval are, say it with me now, safe and effective. Suppression of dissent. In a paper titled Suppressing Scientific Discourse on Vaccines, Self-Perceptions of Researchers and Practitioners, four Israeli academics presented a qualitative analysis of the experiences of physicians, nurses and researchers who had taken a critical view on vaccines. These well-credentialed professionals, whose names were withheld by the researchers to protect them from further harassment and discrimination, reported experiencing a wide variety of censorship and suppression tactics, including, firstly, defamation in legacy media and online, with clear intent to besmirch the reputation and destroy the livelihood of any clinician or scientist who questions vaccine safety and efficacy, and generally perpetrated by people or organisations that refuse to provide proof of their claims or engage in any kind of debate with their targets. Some respondents, quote, pointed to what they viewed as an organised system designed to locate and attack critical publications on vaccines, aimed at undermining their authors' credibility and delegitimising them by referring to them as distributors of fake news, misinformation and conspiracies that endanger public health, end of quote. Secondly, online censorship, with Wikipedia providing a particularly striking example. A quote from a doctor who was interviewed as part of the study. If I try to add a line in Wikipedia about research against the measles vaccine, for example, it will be removed immediately. Who censors Wikipedia? The answer is simple. The industry pays money to scientists and academics to enter information, track and erase if necessary. End of quote. Thirdly, retraction of papers which had already undergone peer review and been published. Respondents reported that while publishers cited spurious concerns about methodological errors as the reason for the retraction, the real motivations were, quote, politico-economic rather than scientific, end of quote, usually related to conflicts of interest involving the pharmaceutical industry. And a quote from a researcher interviewed for the paper, It's blatant censorship of a topic because of my perspective. There's no other way to understand this except for content restriction on my work. I mean, I was publishing in peer-reviewed journals. I was being called to testify in states around the country. It was perspective-related. If I had done pro-vaccine slanted, it would have been fine, end of quote. Fourthly, denial of research grants. Several respondents who had successfully obtained grants for non-vaccine-related topics reported that they were unable to obtain any funding for research on the topic of vaccine safety. The following vignette is particularly chilling. Quote, One well-established researcher we interviewed was no longer able to get grants for research on any topic after publishing a paper that raised potential concerns about the safety of vaccines. And a quote from the researcher, I used to get all my funding from the normal sources, governments, charities, our research council industry. I do not get any of that funding anymore. 
All our research funding now comes from philanthropy. Now I do not even bother putting in applications to these organisations. We need to try to get funding from philanthropy to continue. End of quote from the researcher. And the article went on. Subsequent to our interview, the university administration also suspended his funding from philanthropic sources. End of quote. And finally, calls for dismissal being summoned for a hearing by their country's Ministry of Health and or medical licensing boards and suspension or revocation of medical license. Many respondents reported being subjected to these psychologically and financially costly forms of censure after publishing adverse data on vaccine safety, treating vaccine-injured patients or publicly questioning vaccine safety and or efficacy. They perceived that these actions were intended not only to punish them, but to deter other researchers and health professionals from publicly airing concerns about vaccines, resulting in self-censorship, which fosters the narrative that practitioners and academics are in complete consensus on vaccine safety and efficacy. When considered in toto, these tactics fulfil the criteria for suppression of dissent, that is, suppression of individuals and all the research that is, quote, carried out by those with a higher power or rank in the hierarchy against others below them, and one that cannot be justified by conventional scientific or academic criteria alone, end of quote. This suppression of dissent inevitably results in, quote, violation of freedom of speech, violation of ethical principles of science, and neglect of important areas of research, end of quote. And the public is the biggest loser in this corrupt game. Gary Goldman and the Great Shingles Cover-Up The travails of Gary Goldman provide a vivid real-life case study of the suppression of dissent described by the anonymous respondents in the Israeli academic study. As described in the book, The Chickenpox Vaccine, A New Epidemic of Disease and Corruption, and summarised in an interview conducted by Neil Miller, in 1995, Goldman was hired by the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services to serve as the sole research analyst on a CDC-funded project to study the effects of the newly introduced varicella vaccine on the incidence of both chickenpox and shingles. The CDC eagerly published Goldman's positive findings, an almost 80% reduction in chickenpox cases from the licensure of the varicella vaccine in March 1995 through to 2000. But when he began to detect evidence of both waning vaccine efficacy and harms inflicted by the vaccination program in the form of a dramatic upswing in the incidence of shingles in both children and adults, particularly in those who had already had chickenpox, Goldman encountered escalating opposition from the agency. The CDC refused to publish his negative findings on the varicella vaccine amid any discussion of the precipitous rise in the rate of shingles from its published cost-benefit analyses of the vaccination program and eventually, in 2002, ordered Goldman not to pursue any further studies of shingles. Disgusted and appalled, Goldman resigned from his position in order to be able to publish his results and to, as he put it, not, quote, be a participant in what I perceived was research fraud, end of quote. However, when he attempted to publish his concerning findings on shingles in a medical journal, the Los Angeles County Legal Department served him with a notice to cease and desist from publishing any information he had gathered as part of his employment. At his own expense, Goldman retained an attorney to resolve the legal issues and subsequently was able to publish his findings in the journal Vaccines, and I've linked to three of his studies in the post accompanying this podcast episode. However, the CDC contacted the journal's publisher, Elsevier, claiming that the data Goldman used in his analyses were confidential and he had no right to them. Goldman faxed Elsevier's senior publishing editor the letter his attorney had sent to the LA County Legal Department and assumed the matter was resolved when he received no response. But CDC hadn't given up its harassment campaign. 
As Goldman explained, quote, another one of my studies that modelled additional costs associated with the universal varicella vaccination program due to the increased rates of herpes zoster, that is shingles, was postponed for an entire year from appearing in the print edition of Vaccine after Elsevier received a complaint from the CDC. Resolution of this delay required intervention by my attorney, end of quote. And that quote is from an interview with Gary Goldman, PhD, on CDC suppression of undesirable vaccine data. Goldman summarised his findings on the impact of varicella vaccine on shingles incidents in a 2013 publication as follows, quote, In a cooperative agreement starting January 1995, prior to the FDA's licensure of the varicella vaccine on March 17, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, funded the Los Angeles Department of Health Services' Antelope Valley Varicella Active Surveillance Program, the AV-VASP. Varicella, that is chickenpox, case reports decreased 72% from 2,834 in 1995 to 836 in 2000, at which time approximately 50% of children under 10 years of age had been vaccinated. Starting in 2000, herpes zoster, commonly known as shingles surveillance, was added to the project. By 2002, notable increases in herpes zoster incidence rates were reported among both children and adults with a prior history of natural varicella. However, CDC authorities still claimed that no increase in herpes zoster had occurred in any US surveillance site. The basic assumptions inherent to the varicella cost-benefit analysis ignored the significance of exogenous boosting caused by those shedding wild-type varicella zoster virus, which is the causative agent of both chickenpox and shingles. Also ignored was the morbidity associated with even rare serious events following varicella vaccination, as well as the morbidity from increasing cases of herpes zoster among adults. Vaccine efficacy declined below 80% in 2001. By 2006, because 20% of vaccinees were experiencing breakthrough varicella and vaccine-induced protection was waning, the CDC recommended a booster dose for children, and in 2007, a shingles vaccination was approved for adults aged 60 years and older. In the pre-licensure era, 95% of adults experienced natural chickenpox, usually as children. These cases were usually benign and resulted in long-term immunity. Varicella vaccination is less effective than the natural immunity that existed in pre-vaccine communities. Universal varicella vaccination has not proven to be cost-effective as increased herpes zoster morbidity has disproportionately offset cost savings associated with reductions in varicella disease. Universal varicella vaccination has failed to provide long-term protection from varicella zoster virus disease. End of quote. And that quote was from Goldman's paper, Review of the United States Universal Varicella Vaccination Program, Herpes Zoster Incidence Rates, Cost Effectiveness and Vaccine Efficacy, based primarily on the Antelope Valley Varicella Active Surveillance Project data. After Goldman's devastating expose was published, the CDC fessed up to the blatant data fraud it had committed for well over a decade, sacked the personnel who had been responsible for the cover-up, withdrew the chickenpox vaccine from the market, compensated everyone who had been harmed by it, and promised not to let any more dodgy vaccines onto the market. Just kidding. They retained the two-dose schedule in their childhood vaccination recommendations, approved a combination measles, mumps, rubella, varicella vaccine, which made it harder for parents to dodge the chickenpox vaccine if their child had already had the disease or they didn't think it was necessary to vaccinate against it, added a two-dose schedule to the adult recommendations for everyone born after 1980, and retained the recommendation for a two-dose schedule of the shingles vaccine that had only become necessary as a result of introducing the chickenpox vaccine. Because science trademark. An iron curtain descends on Mr. Aluminum.
Goldman's Gothic tale is far from unusual. Christopher Exley is one of the world's leading authorities on aluminium and its effects on human health. In fact, due to his nearly four-decade-long quest to understand the impact of aluminium on biological systems, summarised in his book, Imagine You Are an Aluminum Atom, Exley has become widely known as Mr. Aluminum, surrendering to the US spelling of this ubiquitous element despite his English provenance. Unsurprisingly, the aluminium industry ran interference on the dissemination of Exley's research findings, but up until 2016, Keele University, where Exley serves as a professor of bio-inorganic chemistry, fully supported his research. But when Exley and his research team began uncovering evidence that children who had died with the diagnosis of autism had exceptionally high levels of aluminium in the microglial cells of their brains, and linking this with the burgeoning use of paediatric vaccines that include an aluminium adjuvant, Keel's relationship with Mr. Aluminum began to turn sour. Exley, by the way, did not start out believing that aluminium-containing vaccine adjuvants played a significant role in the development of autism. YouTube views discussion of the process by which Exley reluctantly changed his mind as a violation of their community guidelines. One wonders which community they had in mind when drafting these guidelines. Stalin's USSR or Mao's China, perhaps? But fortunately, the Wayback Machine has preserved Exley's presentation on his findings, and I've embedded it in the post accompanying this podcast episode. It's well worth a watch. I want to share something with you which I think you will find important. Something which has changed my mind. We have had the opportunity to look at whether or not people who have died with a diagnosis of autism, whether they have high levels of aluminium in their brain tissue. It's very difficult to get these sorts of tissues. There are very few available. In the United Kingdom, we were able to get brain tissue from five individuals. You can see how important this is to me because my saliva is disappearing here. And I'm not normally nervous, I am now. So we had the opportunity to do two things. One was to measure how much aluminium is in the brain of five individuals who died with a diagnosis of autism. The brain bank who supplied us with those frozen tissues also had fixed tissues for 10 individuals who died with a diagnosis of autism. Fixed tissues you cannot use for measuring aluminium content, but we can use the methods that we have developed to look for aluminium in those tissues. So we have, done, have data on how much aluminium is present, and what I'm going to show you in a minute are some images of aluminium in brain tissue in autism. The quantitative data, I would say, shocked me. The last time I was this shocked was when we measured aluminium in the brains of people who died with familial Alzheimer's disease. There we measured some of the highest brain aluminium ever reported. These autism tissues came close, a close second 
In the paper, I specifically ask a question. Why does a 15-year-old boy who died with autism have a huge amount of aluminium in his brain tissue? There is no clear and obvious explanation for this. All five of our individuals had what I would call pathologically significant and in some cases incredibly high aluminium content in variety of the different lobes of the brain. So this in itself was incredibly worrying. No other study like this has ever been carried out. The closest we know about any connection between aluminium and autism would be studies on hair, and you already know my opinions on that, and one or two studies looking at uh, blood and urine. But really, you're talking three or four studies ever being carried out, all of them equivocal. We did this study to try to ascertain, is there a case for a role for aluminium in autism? What you're looking at here are not extracellular deposits of aluminium. These deposits are inside cells. These cells are not neurons. These cells are essentially uh, versions of the cells that you might have heard of known as macrophages, monocytes, inflammatory cells. They're the types of cell that in the body go around picking up things as housekeeping, picking up things that we don't want, getting rid of them. They're also the same cells that go to the injection site of a vaccine and pick up aluminium at the injection site. In this image here, we have evidence of these cells moving from the body into the brain tissue across the meninges. So the standout observations here for autism First of all, extremely high levels of aluminium in the brain tissue of individuals who died with a diagnosis of autism. Very worrying. But I think in many ways more worrying evidence that that aluminium is coming into the brain from cells, inflammatory cells that have loaded up in the body carrying the aluminium into the brain some of those cells which within the brain as glia or microglia will not help uh, in terms of uh, the usual, we call it, as I said, synaptic pruning that is required so they will interrupt that process and potentially at least begin to produce perhaps some of the symptoms that we see in autism. So this major finding that we have never seen before in any brain tissues is the presence of aluminium in non, predominantly in non-neuronal cells. The cells that are responsible for the housekeeping both in the body but moving into the brain, the cells responsible for housekeeping in the brain loaded with aluminium and, and if you're loaded with aluminium you may be functional for a while but you're not functional for long. Aluminium, as we all know, is a cellular toxicant, it's cytotoxic, it's neurotoxic. So, for me, it's quite shocking. In fact, 
I would go so far, and Didier Lambert knows this, I've been asked over many years now by people like Didier, Chris, you know, we support a moratorium on the use of aluminium adjuvants in vaccines. Do you? And I've said no. And I've said no because I didn't see there was a viable alternative to something that works extremely well. And the reason other adjuvants are not used is because we know and accept that they are toxic. However, things have changed. To me, this tells me that regardless, any vaccine which includes an aluminium adjuvant, you will get aluminium from that going into your brain. It does not produce disease in all of us, clearly. There are other factors, and someone mentioned it earlier. Clearly, there are other factors, probably genetic, which mean that some people either have more transfer of aluminium into the brain in this form, or they retain the aluminium in the brain tissue uh, for longer. But there are clear differences in physiology, in individual physiology, which mean that some people are much more susceptible than others. However, it still means that a significant proportion of people are probably suffering some form of brain disorder because of aluminium adjuvants in vaccines. And now I'm probably along the line of saying that unless that vaccine is proven to save your life, I would not have it if it had an aluminium adjuvant. Thank you. After a change in administration and funding sources, Keele University began to undermine Exley's work, initially with subtle strategies, including spiking press releases that Exley wrote to publicise his research findings and downplaying or ignoring major scientific contributions by his research group. The university's sabotage program eventually escalated to disabling Exley's website and preventing him from receiving philanthropic donations to finance his research. As a direct result of Keel cutting off his ability to receive funding from individuals and groups that wish to support his work, the Exley group ceased their research on the 31st of August 2021. Before his vital research was unceremoniously terminated, Exley responded to a 2019 article in the BMJ titled Information Wars, Tackling the Threat from Disinformation on Vaccines, which decried, quote, the role played by disinformation spread through social media, end of quote, in fermenting vaccine hesitancy and urging public health authorities to, quote, employ much more sophisticated messages, end of quote, to, quote, confront disinformation, end of quote. Exley's response was razor sharp. Quote, My group researches vaccine safety. We undertake research to understand the role of aluminium adjuvants in vaccination and how these adjuvants may be linked to serious adverse events following vaccination. Upon completing our research, we submit it for peer review, and if accepted, it is published. Is this what the authors of this editorial consider as misinformation? The approach taken by the authors of this piece is exactly why vaccine hesitancy exists. Those of us researching the safety of vaccines know that they are not 100% safe for everyone. The vaccine industry knows this and they are required by law to put this information on the patient information leaflets provided with every vaccine. Only the government and people like the authors of this article deny the potential dangers of vaccination. 
Their denial is what sparks vaccine hesitancy in the public, as the public are very much aware of potential dangers. Until individuals such as the authors of this article remove their heads from the sand and allow a full and transparent debate on vaccine safety, the problem of vaccine hesitancy will only become even more widespread. Politics should not trump human health, end of quote. And that was from Exley's rapid response to the article, Information Wars, Tackling the Threat from Disinformation on Vaccines. But as Exley well knew, after decades of repeated assaults on his research endeavours, first by the aluminium industry and then by the vaccine industrial complex, politics has been trumping human health for a long time. We'll delve into how and why this has been allowed to happen in the final part of this series. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.